Before we start, just a quick word of recommendation for another great podcast called Stage Blether by our friend and colleague Sam Haddow. It is about Scottish theatre and much else besides. If you like State of the Theory, we think you will definitely like that. The latest episode is on haunted houses. Go and give it a listen. You can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes. And enjoy this episode. Thank you. The lie the poetry tells Is constant as the truth itself Without the lies and the false beliefs Where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello. Nice to see you again. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is episode 15. 15. Flying while Muslim. Yes. Today we are talking about Muslims on planes. Muslims on planes. Ooh. That should be a movie. Well, it shouldn't be a movie. It sh- it's basically every movie, it's every movie about yes. planes and Muslims. Yes. It's... Yeah, yes. we're going to talk about that some more. Yes. Um, hashtag Flying While Muslim. Check it out, I would say, as a starting point for us today. There's a great Wikipedia article about it as well. Yeah. We'll talk about... We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes. So why why did we decide to talk about this? this so there have been... This happens regularly, um, and sometimes the stories go viral. Um, and this week... We've actually had two incidents. Um, Southwest Airlines, um, for those of you who don't spend much time in the United States, Southwest Airlines is a domestic airline. They fly a lot of regional routes. They're quite popular because they're still affordable. They don't charge you for a bag, and they get you where you want to go on time. They have the best on-time record, which is really bizarre. They also have an excellent record of um, kicking people off of planes for dubious reasons. Um, and this week they made headlines for kicking off a young man, an Iraqi refugee and student who was on one of their flights and he was on the phone. He was talking to his uncle and he was speaking in Arabic and he was deemed to be a flight security risk for speaking Arabic on the phone to his uncle and he was forced off the plane. And... There was another incident again this week where um, a Somali woman uh, wearing a headscarf, as all the news outlets have helpfully told us, um, was taken off the plane because another passenger said she was staring at me and I don't like being stared at. Um, there's so much we could do in terms of, of, of politics of gays. Uh, we should... That's to make it intellectual. I would yes. say four-year-olds that I babysit get yes. really mad yes. when another four-year-old stares yes. at them. Yes, yes. It's, it is fundamentally that. It, it is very infantile. Um, we should... Uh, the, the caveat you, you gave earlier about Southwest Airlines uh, definitely applies because even a brief troll through Google shows that they've kicked off plenty of people who are not Muslim. They've kicked off people for being lesbian. They've kicked off people for wearing short skirts. They've kicked off people for being too fat. They've kicked off children for They've being children. Children for being children. And some of these people are famous. Yes. And mobilize, you know, a Twitter following. Yes. yes. But there is a wider 
uh, issue that goes beyond Southwest Airlines, which is to do with people who are identifiably Muslim. Because, you know, speaking Arabic doesn't necessarily make you Muslim. State obvious. People identified as, as Muslim being seen as risky. So what do we have to say about this, this phenomenon of identifying Islam as risky? There's a lot to say. We've talked before on other podcasts about bordering processes and biometric border patrol technologies and, and security. Um, we've talked also about cultural appropriation in our very first episode, if you go back in time and dig around in our archives. Um, we talked a lot about cultural appropriation, and one of the conclusions that we came to is that in particular when we're talking about um, Muslim cultural tropes and Arab cultural tropes that appear in the media, um, we as, you know, Western and I as a white, you know, audience find it very difficult to dissociate those images from reality, from actual actual people, despite the fact that those images are not rooted in evidence-based filmmaking, yes. I would say. Yes. Um, they're fantasy. Yes. They're orientalized images that are imaginative rather than real. Yes. In that sense. But yes. today, we're going to focus on securitization, discourses of securitization, and also material practices and procedures of securitization, and about the fetishization of air travel and flights and airplanes as objects of potential destruction and Muslims as bodies of the potential cause of destruction. And, and uh, both Muslim bodies and planes as potential weapons mm -hmm. of destruction. Yes. So it's important. But, yes. I think we we discussed. We we wanted to mention. We've said this before when we talk about groups of people and communities of which we are not members. Muslims have been talking about this phenomenon forever. Yes. There are some hilarious and very insightful and observant comedians out there. I'm thinking specifically of the Axis of Evil comedy tour, which made the rounds a number of years ago. Three Muslim guys um, doing stand-up about being Muslim talk extensively about what it's like to be a Muslim and to fly on airplanes. Um, hashtag flying while Muslim. Lots of satirical articles about this particular instance. Um, you wanted to highlight one, I think. Yeah, there were a couple that, that's, that stood out to me. There was one uh, which a site called the Hummus News uh, published, which is an article about a Delta plane that was forced to land because a Muslim passenger didn't smile widely enough, uh, which I, I quite liked. And the other one, which was even better, I think, which is um, this spoof about a special premium class where you're allowed to speak Arabic uh, without fear of uh, retribution. And I quite like that because so much of air travel is about stratification. It's about stratification into into classes, literally. You, know, you have your business, your, your first, your premium, your economy, and so on. Um, and the idea that unhindered travel is 
a marker of class as a very astutely observed thing as as part of the satire. And we've talked about this. We we spoke about this uh, before when we talked about uh, fascism and borders. When we we spoke about Wendy Brown and um, the various um, ways in which the neoliberal nexus polices the ability or otherwise to cross borders. Yes. It's also hilarious because Southwest doesn't have a first class. And this satirical article is about Southwest's, you know, premier Muslim status. I think it was 45 bucks that they made up. It's a great article. We'll link link to it. Um, It's 45 bucks and you pay your fee and you then get the right to be yourself. Yes. Um, On the plane. I mean, the, the... the twinning of speaking Arabic and, and and therefore being Muslim is is fascinating as well. It's sort of one of those these overlapping categories that hide as much as they reveal because you know, there there are more Muslims who don't speak Arabic than Muslims who do. Yes, uh, empirically that's a fact. And many uh, Arabs and will many tell Arabs you that there are many many Arabs who are not Muslim. Who are not Muslim. Um, it reminds me a little bit of. Uh, MIA, um, the music artist who who got into trouble yesterday, day before, something yeah, like hours ago, um, for criticizing Black Lives Matter because it it showed that there was space to protest about injustice done to Black people, and there isn't no space in America about to protest injustice done to Muslims, uh, and it, of course that argument is the same thing of of setting up black and Muslim as mutually exclusive categories, when of course that is... They're most definitely not. Not not the case. Um, What does the way in which Islam is policed tell us about the securitization of mass transit, mass transport? Well, what I think is really interesting is this is... We'll talk, I think, about bit about 9-11, what 9-11 has to do with all of this. But I think as well, this is not particularly new. Um, In the 19th century, in the colonies, there were a lot of practices that were informal and often made formal and codified into law, um, and then were built up into entire legal Um, and justice frameworks, which allowed for securitization practices which are very similar to the kind of security that you encounter when you go to an airport and get on an airplane, for example. And it makes legal these particular kinds of practices, which we may find to be morally dubious, ethically problematic, inconveniencing you know, whatever it is that we find them. Um, There's a colonial history to this kind of of surveillance and this kind of policing. Um, And, you know, we we spoke last week about the Amritsar massacre, for example. One of the um, very effective ways of policing Amritsar during that period, the British government and the British military described that period as one of severe unrest and instability, where any Indian, any Indian person, whether it was a small child or a woman or a, a very elderly person, it didn't matter, any Indian in the vicinity of the city, 
became a potential threat because of this feeling of instability. And so they instated a, a bunch of practices um, embodied, to use the theoretical term, but practices that limited the movement, the mobility, the access of Indian bodies through the city. So for example, they required that um, on a particular street, all Indians pass through the street on hands and knees in order to restrict their mobility, in order to punish them, um, and in order to keep them from concealing weapons, that kind of thing. So everyone was seen to be a risk. This is a huge part of the colonial government strategy and tactics. Um, and it works really well across scale. So you can impose it on an individual or on a small group of people. And then you can also impose it on entire, you know, large scale communities across regions, across the entire bureaucratic system. It works it works very well, in a sense. It 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 does as well because the burden of proof changes, I think. In other words, you don't have to prove an individual threat of any kind, whether that's an actual individual person or an individual instance. If you can successfully demonstrate that your fears are justified, in other words, that you have a reasonable justification for feeling unsafe, then that in and of itself justifies everything else. And that was codified into law. Yes. That was very important. It's yes. very important yes. that we that we say that that's legal. Yes. Um, and the assumptions yes. upon which those laws are made are rooted in colonial forms of categorizing people yes. based on group identities. And it's not all that dissimilar from the ways in which the various murders that um, helped inspire the Black Lives Movement, um, the way those murders were justified. You can think of George Zimmerman's murder of Trayvon Martin, the way that was justified. You can think about the murder of Eric Garner, Michael Brown. Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice, and on and on and on. The very, very many more whom, whom we can't name. And one of the ways in which these murders have been and continue to be justified is that the person doing the shooting felt in danger. And that feeling is is enough to justify the murder. Yes. it's. I mean, it's, this comes up in more mundane ways. I mean, the, the practice itself and the way of calculating risk is quite mundane, to be honest. I mean, it's how, until very recently, when the Affordable Care Act stepped in, it's how insurance companies were able to deny coverage to people. It's how car insurance companies were able to give particular rates to particular categories of people because they were statistically more or less likely to drive safely or unsafely. It's that same statistical calculation of risk that is imbued also with biometric eugenicist, you know, old school colonial racial categorizations of people as being biologically and inherently more likely or less likely to behave in particular kinds of ways. I mean, so I, I'm no statistician, as, as we all know, but is is there that uh, fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between correlation and causation? 
you know, is that what is going on in that statistical misreading? Or is it not a misreading? I don't think it's necessarily a misreading. It is just, and Foucault tells us, Foucault tells us about statistics. Statistics is the mathematics of the state. Statistics are used, and they were developed as a, a mathematical process in the 18th and 19th centuries in order for the state to calculate information about itself, to calculate mathematical, quantifiable information about itself, specifically its population. So statistics are actually designed as a procedure to calculate these kinds of things. That is the whole point yes. of them. Yes. So in a sense, it's not that they're that it's a miscalculation. It is that this is they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in the sense of women drivers of yeah. a certain age are less likely to get into accidents, so therefore you reward them. Yes. You know, if it that's a that's a practice of the state. Taking a census and using that data to calculate health inequalities across yes. the entirety of your, your geographical territory work that you, you know, people that you and I know do, mm. um, you know, that that's all part of this realm of what Foucault calls the science of the state yes. statistics. Mm. It's, it's purpose according to, you know, a number of people is benign and it gets used and misused and abused in profiling, for example, um, stop and frisk policies in New York City, for example, um, flying while Muslim, for example, where statistics get abused for the purposes of of reinforcing particular kinds of violence against particular kinds of people within the state, um, in plain terms, for discriminating against Muslims or people who look Muslim. Um, but I don't think, you know, Foucault would say that that's just part of this, yeah. part of the technology of statistics, that that's part of their power, that they have the ability to do this kind of work. Yeah. Um, but they also have the ability to tell us really important things about health outcomes. Yes. And so it's, it's more complicated, yeah. but I think for our purposes, we find this issue of discriminatory profiling yes. to be deeply problematic. Yes. Um, and especially in the context of the cultural and narrative significance of the airplane. And that, and, and the, the narrative significance of the, the airplane as a source of fear or uh, as a as a symbol that is associated with fear um has a long history as as you've said already um it goes goes before 911 both in terms of general fear of flying you know airplanes that can crash by themselves things go wrong but also specific human action you know we could think of um various activities that were defined as terrorist throughout the 60s and 70s um and and since that centered around planes. What I think changes after 9-11 is that the fear gets transported away from the fear of being on a plane to the fear of something happening to you when you're on the ground or when you're in a building and a plane can still be used against you as a, as a weapon of war. Um, 
the example I always go to, and we've spoken about this before, is the film Invictus, which has nothing to do with planes, really. It's a it's a film about the the change in government in South Africa as move away from apartheid to to democracy, and the role that the Rugby World Cup, which was held in South Africa, and the way Nelson Mandela used the Rugby World Cup to to create a, a rainbow nation, uh, to to bring the white population on board in this in this new democracy. There is a scene towards the end of that film when uh, Nelson Mandela, as president of South Africa, his his security detail are worried about this event, the Rugby World Cup final because there is fear of assassination and so on. And there is one particular scene where a security agent looks far off into the distance and sees a, f- a plane, a jet, a big passenger jet. And there, it's a, it's a fairly long sequence intercut between these two rather rather scary anonymous pilots who are, who are never introduced or nothing is, uh, nothing is said about them. And the, the shots intercut going backwards and forwards from the plane to the to the actual stadium and vice versa as the plane comes closer and closer. And as an audience we are clearly expecting the plane to be used as a as a weapon of assassination. And it then it turns into a fly past. So it's it's got it has it had no uh no other ulterior motive at any point. What is interesting to me is that this is a post nine eleven film about a pre nine eleven world. And I don't reckon in 94 or whenever it was that a security agent seeing a plane way off into in the distance when it's just a, a speck in the sky would immediately have thought that is a potential hazard yeah or that us as audience members would all see watch that scene yes and experience the same understanding of the narrative at the same time i, I think you're absolutely right i think something has changed in the way we see planes as outsiders, not as passengers, um, after 9-11. And the way in which we associate planes specifically, as opposed to other forms of mass transit, as potentially vulnerable sites for terrorist attacks and scapegoats. Yeah, or other kinds of infrastructure. So, I mean, after the Oklahoma City bombings, that very horrific event, um, there there was great fear around buildings and parking garages and access to um, parts of buildings where you could take down a whole building. You know, there's... Um, and at the same time, there were a couple of um, bombing incidents at embassies around the the world that targeted buildings so there was a focus on on the building and there was a focus on the plane but they're two separate kinds of violent act they're, they do different things they serve different purposes and the ways in which they're policed differently as well so in britain or in america it is it would be abnormal to have security checks as you go into a shopping center or a shopping mall. In the Indian subcontinent, it is completely routine. And speaking personally as an individual who occupies both countries, as it were, um, who travels between these, these two parts of the world, it is 
extraordinary how easily you normalize the security or the presence of security checks in one environment and the absence in the other. So if you drive in into a shopping center car park in, in India or in Pakistan, your car is stopped, the boot is checked, the, you, the, the security guards use mirrors to see if there, there are bombs underneath your car, um, which mark out the space um, of the shopping mall as vulnerable potential targets of, of terrorist attacks, but also as exclusive in class terms. Because, of course, the other thing the security guards are doing, by virtue of being there and by virtue of being there, is policing who can come in based on the way you look, what clothes you're wearing, what kind, if you're driving a car, it's, if you're a pedestrian who does, who, who does not look like they're middle class and can afford to be there, then they're not allowed in. Um, so, again, not unlike border crossings by plane, the, the lines between securitization and class stratification are blurred. Yes, and the role of security forces and what exactly it is they're policing becomes ambiguous. Yes, and where they choose to police. So, you know, a couple of, couple of months ago we were on holiday and we, we took ferries in the, in the north and west of Scotland. Um, huge ships where passengers and, and cars can go on but there was no security if that had been a plane even if it had been a domestic plane not in other words not international routes you still would have security and it's um, there are ways in which I think we as people inhabiting these spaces and going through these processes of securitization don't necessarily stop and look and think and wonder why some spaces are deemed to need security and others not. Yes. I mean, part of it, you know, the we talked about the practical arguments last week, but part of it is is practical. Yes. There's a, you know, if you were to instate mass security checks on the tube, and it's not to say there's no security. I mean, not on the New York subway, for example, they set up security checkpoints. I mean, I've had my bag checked by NYPD officers yeah, yes. on the New York subway, but it's not routine. No. And it's not it's not designed specifically as part of the process of travel. No, uh, and also the other difference is that there is more what we might call outsourcing. In yeah. other words, you are being encouraged to report suspicious things. So there are lots and lots of signs that remind you that you are living in a world, in a space, which may come under attack. Yeah, if you see something, say something, Yes, um, which is you know, New York's. Yes, phone, phones and phone numbers, and you know, if you don't pick up a suspicious parcel, don't leave your bags lying around. Um, you know, the, the London Underground Network has dispensed with bins since the 1970s and IRA attacks and IRA specialised in putting, putting, apparently putting bombs in bins. So you don't have any bins anywhere in the London Underground Network. Uh, so, so the traces of securitization exist in all of these spaces, but to a much lesser degree than, it, than on flights and in airports. Yes. What's, I think is especially interesting about these particular Southwest incidents um, and some of the similar ones that have made the news 
is, you know, you, f- f- hashtag Flying Wall Muslim, you can read all kinds of anecdotes and stories and observations about people going through security and the kinds of conversations that they have to have, the kinds of um, procedures that people are subjected to, sometimes, you know, farcical, sometimes, you know, unnerving. Um, and But that's part of the security process. Once you're on the plane, yeah. you've been through security. Yes. You've been, yes. Your ID has been checked. Yes. You've, been, you've been matched against your government records. You've, you know, yeah. all these, these kind of biometric processes have been done. At the point when you're on the plane, you're now just subject to the informal expertise of your fellow passengers who apparently are now experts in identifying terrorists on on planes, um, just from a look. Well, it's the extension of if you see something, say something, isn't yeah. it? It's sort of like your the the legitimacy of your fear, because we all know that we live in a scary world, and therefore you are right to be afraid. The legitimacy of that fear justifies action. Um, so it it does not matter if the person sat next to me is a terrorist. I am justified in reporting them because I was suspicious. Yeah. And my suspicion proves my, justifies my action, and my action justified my suspicion, as it were. So it's a, it's a circular argument from which you can't get out. Well, and it's how racism works. Yes. Fundamentally, that's yes. how it works. It's circular logic. Yes. There's theorists that help us with this, especially when we talk about surveillance, when we talk about security, when we talk about categorizing and policing of bodies and groups. You know, Foucault is the obvious place to go. Um, Chomsky as well. Noam Chomsky talks a lot about border practices and policing, especially now. Um, he, he writes a lot now. Um, but I don't think that the theory, and we've talked about this before when we talk about borders, I don't think the theory takes us all the way there to understanding exactly what's going on. And also understanding exactly why it's going on. Yeah. Um, you know, there is, a, there, there is a simple explanation, which would be, which is simplifying Chomsky's explanation, I think, which is manufacturing consent. In other words, that the, the reason all of these securitization processes exist, the infrastructure exists, is to convince you that you should be afraid. And by convincing you that you are, you should be afraid, your permission is then acquired for the government to do what it wants to do in your name and in order to protect you. But that seems, I think, to both of us a slightly too simple explanation. Yeah, Foucault's explanation is the reproduction of the state, the state maintaining itself, the state creating and consolidating order for the purposes of perpetuating itself because the state wants to continue, Um, which is, you know, a a jargon-filled way of saying maintaining the status quo. Um, And I think both of those explanations are absolutely right. I think that they're that they're accurate and evidence-based yeah. yes. and that they're they're useful. But I don't think they fully explain what happens when you sit on a plane and you are Muslim 
and the person next to you calls over a flight attendant and says, this person is scaring me. Or what happens when you are on that plane and you are not a Muslim and you are either doing the complaining or you're watching the complaining happen. And the, the affective, symbolic, and cultural practice that's happening, which is not just a mechanism of the state, but is also is also a social interaction yes. that you're having it's, in an immediate sense. It's also sort of part of my problem with the with the the explanation as as we've outlined it, uh, summarizing Foucault and Chomsky, is that there seems to be, and I think this is the point you're making as well. There seems to be sort of an issue of scale here as well. That yes, it is. You can see on the macro level, as it were, on the nation-state-wide level, why it is in the state's interest to keep you afraid. But it is difficult to join the dots and talk about this particular instance where this one Iraqi refugee student is taken off the plane. How does that help America continue being America? It doesn't. It doesn't. And it... In other words, I think I don't quite see why the state bothers to put so much energy and money and money into creating and maintaining a massive uh, infrastructure of security. Because from where I'm sitting, the state, the nation state as an entity does not seem to be under threat. Certainly not the nation states that we are exactly. a part of. Or, or certainly the concept of the nation state. Yeah. Rather than individual nation states, which I think Foucault is, is more interested in. He's, he's more thinking about the concept of the nation state as an, as an entity, as opposed to any particular. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much of it is... I mean, there's the fear element. There's people yeah. who don't understand how statistics work, yes. who don't understand how probability works, who don't understand how concepts of likelihood and risk work. Um, You know, people who who genuinely believe that they are more likely to die in the context of a terrorist attack than they are to die in a car accident or of cancer. Um, And that is, you know, about cultural narratives and, and how we consume cultural representations of certain kinds of death. Um, But in a sense, it doesn't quite make sense. Like, what's the the alternative to the state? You know, if everyone sort of realized, like, actually, we are at risk in other ways. We are at greater risk of dying by some sort of climate-related disaster. Or, you know, that... That it's not just that it's it's factually incorrect, it's scientifically incorrect, it's statistically incorrect. And if everyone's views were to be corrected and everyone actually had the best possible knowledge, the, the state would suddenly f- stop existing. No. Because, and, and part of that assumption is, for me, a, a misreading of the nature of prejudice. In other words, racism, sexism, homophobia, whatever prejudice you think about. I don't think prejudice is a cognitive problem. In other words, the the argument about lack of knowledge about risk, 
suggests that I am afraid of the Muslim person sat next to me because I don't understand probability and I don't understand that the person next to me is no more likely to be a terrorist in real, in any real terms because they're Muslim. I don't think I don't see that as how prejudice works. No. There's some prejudice has something more visceral, something more affective about it rather than on on a cognitive level. Yeah, it's there's an illogic yes. an irrationality to it. Um which sociologists have have started yes. to really argue this because I think if we use Chomsky or Foucault to explain what's happening on a macro scale, you know, securitization yes. yeah. level, we're missing because it, that then begs the question, you know, well, if if everyone knew, if everyone, you know, lived in the matrix and you know, took the red pill and yeah. saw what was going on, yeah. then no one would be racist anymore. Yeah. But as you say, if that's not how the prejudice works, yeah. then how does it work? There's a brilliant uh, article by Audrey Lord where she talks about sitting on a Harlem train and uh, a white person sat next to her. And she says that the, the white woman dragged her fur coat away towards her, away from me. And she's writing this as a seven, eight-year-old girl. And she says, from the look on her face, I can see that she's seeing something horrific. Maybe there's a roach, something awful between her and me. And she says, and then I realize there is nothing there. It is me who she's recoiling from. And that that word recoiling and that sense of racism or the racist reaction being a similar kind of almost intrinsic, instinctive repulsion as you might have if you see an insect or a, or a reptile or something, um, to me is a, is, it seems a more accurate way of describing the experience of racism. You know, feeling... The, the way you feel when you encounter someone who's actively racist. Yeah. But how that works and what the interest of the state is in promoting that form of visceral prejudice through securitization is a question I don't think we have an answer for. I don't think the theory that we've read has an answer for it. No. I don't think intersectionality can tell us because this isn't about this isn't about identity formation or identity mm. construction this is about social relationships between different kinds of bodies and how they get filtered through yeah. security procedures yeah. so we don't have a conclusion for you this well, week if you have answers then let us know and um, we'd love to hear from you if you if you can explain racism to us yeah. Not a huge challenge. You can find us on Twitter. Yes, uh, let us know on Facebook, on Twitter, on SoundCloud. Um, if you listen to us through iTunes, then rate us, review us. It helps other people find, find our podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. 
Our music was provided by the agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.